This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm teaming up with the website Rewire.News to explore the intersection of their work and mine on a brand new podcast called Get It Right. On Get It Right, we explore pop culture through the lens of justice, and particularly reproductive justice. I'll be talking to critics and creators about comics, movies, TV, music, anything is fair game. You can find it now on iTunes or Stitcher to search for Get It Right or Rewire. Give it a listen and drop us a review with any ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover. See you soon. Wiley from Orange is the New Black. I've got a couple things coming up. I'm going to be in a movie called 37 that I hope everyone goes and checks out. It's important. And I'm currently working on The Handmaid's Tale, which should be coming out next year, 2017. And you're listening to Black Girl Nerd Podcast. Hi, my name is Yvonne Joy Randolph, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, this is Jada Pinkett Smith, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Idris Elba, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Tommy Davidson. You're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. That's right. It exists. Hey, everybody. This is Gary Anthony Wayne, a.k.a. Encore Rockers. This is the Encore Rockers. And you is listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Why the hell they let black women have a podcast? I Episode 93 of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Malice in Ovenland and the Villains of Luke Cage. Three segments. In our first segment, we invite Michelaine Hess. She is the creator behind the book Malice in Ovenland and she talks about the story behind Malice in Ovenland as well as the state of publishing in comics today. That's a one on one with Kayla. In our second segment, we travel back, back at San Diego Comic-Con in July. Had the opportunity in the press line to do a quick interview with Alfre Woodard and Mahershala Ali, who play Mariah Dillard and Cottonmouth Stokes in Marvel's Luke Cage. Now, keep in mind, this interview was done prior to Luke Cage being released, so the answers are a little bit vague. It may sound a little different than what you would expect, but... 
I get a lot of information about the context behind the show and the context behind the characters that were played by both Alfrey and Mahershala. And that's a one-on-one with yours truly. In our third segment, we travel forward, but kind of backward, a couple of weeks ago to New York Comic Con. Had the opportunity to do a roundtable interview with the other villains of Luke Cage, Shades and Diamondback. And in this interview, we have already seen Luke Cage all 13 episodes, so those burning questions that we had for each of them were addressed in this great segment. And again, that's hosted by yours truly. So that is our show. I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to enjoy it. And this is a show that's going to reach all comic book fans, whether you're a comic book fan of the big publishers from Marvel, like Luke Cage, or from independent publishers from Rosarium Publishing, like Malice in Ovenland. This is definitely the show for you. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can do it several different ways. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Music, and Spreaker. That is where you can find all of our shows. And then... Don't forget to check out my new show, Get It Right. We're two episodes in. It's really great. A lot of folks are giving us some great feedback about it. And you can find Get It Right by Rewire News on all of the major streams that I just mentioned that you can find Black Girl Nerds Podcast on. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 93, Malice in Ovenland, and the villains of Luke Cage. Micheline Hess is an artist, designer, and comics maker that lives in New York City. She's a former colorist for Milestone Comics, and her latest book under Rosarium Publishing is called Malice in Ovenland. It's about Lily Brown, a bright, curious, energetic young girl from Queens who lives with her mom and she loves reading and writing and spending time with her friends. But she goes under a weird, fun, exciting adventure when her mom tells her to stay home and clean her oven. Little did she know what she would expect by doing that task. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this segment of the BGN Podcast. This is Kayla, and I'm going to be your host on this awesome segment. I'm super excited to be interviewing our guest. If you have not gotten a chance to pick up Malice and Other Land, you need to. I have the author, Micheline Hess. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm super excited. Just because when I was able to read it, I'm a huge, you know, Alice in Wonderland. So anything that is directly correlated a little bit, I get a little bit excited. (laughs) But then I read it and I was like, okay, this is really different, but it was amazing. So thank you. My first question for you, what inspired you to become a writer and and what books were your catalysts into fantasy? My, uh, it's funny, the very first fantasy book I ever read when I was in middle school and we had to do a book report and I was upset because I didn't know what I was going to do and my teacher gave me a book by a woman named Anne McCaffrey and it was part of a the like a drag the dragon series on Pern and it was about these 
people who had left Earth because Earth was dying and went to live on this other planet and ultimately bred the lizards there into dragons to help uh, fight off this organic threat that was kind of um, threatening their existence. And it was a whole new thing. I, I just had no idea that people were telling stories like that. I had read children's books, of course, but this was just at a whole other level. And it was all downhill or uphill from there, depending on how you look at it. I think that that's a lot of us. We um, are introduced to these things while we're in school, and we don't know exactly how it's going to affect us when we get older. And it leads us in places that we weren't expecting to go. Yeah, big time. Big time for me. I was all about the, well, I'm still all about the dragons. Who am I kidding? <laughs> I think I've read like all of her books. And yeah, I mean, from there it was, you know, um, on to other books. And, you know, I think it was like the Phantom Tollbooth and Wrinkle in Time, like all these different things. And C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yes. it was amazing. From the first time I had to actually sit down and read the books all the way up and through, I did one of my thesis on C.S. Lewis in college. He's very, his book. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just an amazing person. When you read about it and the way that he was able to weave religion and fantasy was amazing. Yeah, because I mean, in a way, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, of course, I didn't see any of the religious part. I was just like, lion, you know. <laughs> lion uh, magic? What? Yeah, magic. <laughs> wardrobe you know a horse and his boy and all that stuff so yeah of course now you kind of see it and you're like hmm but still yeah it was i think fairly seamless the way he did it the way he kind of wove the story around it the messages and things well and it was awesome too you mentioned a horse and his boy that's my favorite one out of the series because you got diversity you got a yes. character that didn't look like everyone else and i that i think her being tarquina really spoke to me as a kid yeah, um, and that was actually kind of the first time that I had had a brush with that. Although at the time, I I think I kind of took it for granted. But then when I went forward, I realized there was, you know, it was like, oh, you know, it's very, uh, it's very white here. There's not, you know, there's not a whole lot. Of, or sometimes you'll see people interacting with other creatures, mm -hmm. but you don't get the same, you know, thing. So ultimately down the road, I think I ended up reading uh, the books of Ursula K. Gwynn. And I was really excited when they ended up saying that they were going to bring it to sci-fi. And, I mean, they, they, they whitewashed so much of it. Uh, I heard even the author was, was absolutely flummoxed by that. And that's one thing. What we take with literature, it's, it's kind of with the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Um, right. With Hermione being black, which I love. You're reading through your own filter and your own lens. So how are you going to tell someone how they are supposed to perceive it just because it may have been casted differently in the movies. So, Right. When you, uh, I remember the dust up that occurred when, when people found out that Rue, the character Rue from um, the, I don't say Catch Games. a Fire, that the Hunger Games was a, a black young woman, you know, and people just lost it. I don't um, know how you didn't get it, but I mean, that's Yeah, it was me. there in the description. <laughs> people were just like, hum, hum, hum. I think that's a lot of glossing over when it comes to literature and, and interpretation, especially with Katniss, because the movie Katniss was nothing what I thought book right. Katniss looked like. And like I said, that's just seen through the lens of someone else. So we're watching the movie through that lens, and we didn't get up in arms about it, but apparently Rue being adorable little black girl just really ate at people. 
Yeah, yeah, it was amazing how it bothered them. Like it changed. It's like, how does it change the story for you? You know what I mean? That's the thing that I couldn't understand. And staying on the same line with diversity, what's the story with the creation behind Malice and Everland? Because I, as a mother, I want to be able to provide stories that reflect and ones that are a direct reflection of what the character was supposed to look like. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, as a kid, I used to go with my brother to, to buy comics. We were in Flatbush and we would go to this corner store. And I mean, there was, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost and Wendy the Witch and, you know, all these things that I used to pull at. I was a big fan of the original Devil Dinosaur, actually. <laughs> and, you know, it was always the same. It was, it was always, uh, white characters. Uh, my father would, you know, bring back comics with him when he went, uh, you know, on his business trips and things like that. And there were very few black characters, and in, in many cases, the, the very few instances you saw a black character, they were portrayed in a way that was anything but flattering or complimentary. Growing older, I kind of felt like I wanted to tell a story that children of color, particularly girls, could look at and see themselves in the adventure. You know, a lot of people will say, well, color doesn't matter if it's a good story, then that's what should pull the person in. But I think that's taking a lot for granted. You know, it's almost like showing up with someone to a party and, you know, you you weren't invited. You're kind of the plus one in the adventure there. Mm -hmm. So I wanted something that really was a direct invitation. Like you are, you know, you are in this world here. You know, this is this character. I think it also kind of creates in the minds of younger children a kind of permission to continue to build their own adventures and form their own stories with characters that look like them and they don't have to strive to be seen or visualize themselves any other way so i think that that's really important and i put it off for i mean a really long time i you know i worked for milestone comics for uh, a brief time and was fully immersed in a world where there were both creators and characters of color <clears throat> which was amazing to me but still i didn't have enough confidence in my own abilities and so ultimately I got to a point where I just uh, got tired of all the negative kind of self-talk and figure, you know, I don't want to look, look back over the years and, and wonder like, what if, you know, what if I had done this? What would have happened? What would it be like? You know, would they, would kids have liked it? And so that's at around, it's like 2009, 2010 is when I started uh, developing uh, Lily Brown in earnest as a character and the world of Ovenland as well. For me, your freedom to create a story like that only comes from having someone um, behind the scenes that understands. So how important is it for you for diversity to be behind the scenes when it comes to publishing as, as much as it is in the forefront for authors? I find, you know, taking a step outside of diversity just to kind of, I guess, I guess prove a point in a way, is that so many of the comics that I read in the past would have female characters that were written by guys and drawn by guys and it shows you know what i mean because you read these things some of these you know, female characters say and you're like what so you know i always would kind of rankle a little bit at the thought of other people kind of speaking for me and speaking for my experiences you know whether it's uh dealing with you know fighting a, another creature trying to deal with the texture of your hair when you're in oven land and it's hot and it's humid and you don't have a decent comb or any clips or anything. I, I love <laughs> that so 
much. I was like, she knows my struggle. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she knows the edges struggle. <laughs> edges, yes, the struggle is definitely real. So, yeah, nothing to seal with, and you know. So yeah, I think it's really important because uh, while I think a person can be a good writer and express and visualize another character well, I think almost like there's an additional reserve when you're talking about the person writing as themselves, you know, for lack of a better term. There's a kind of familiarity there, you know, that you can kind of feel it, you know, it, it can come through. That's inspiring because there's a lot of writers out there that feel like they have to go a certain route in order to get published and with you saying that, it feels like you don't have to lose that part of yourself and compromise what you believe in and who you are. And I really admire that. Um, Thank you. No, it, it, like I said, we, and especially here at BGN, a lot of us are writers, so we get nervous. And I know there's a few of us that are, they're very bold, but there's people like me who have always kind of stuck to the status quo. Well, if I'm going to go to writing class and we have to write a story and we have to have this, 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 and this, and mm. you can't offend anybody. <laughs> so, right. Right. And that's, that's intimidating. And I, the fact that you're able to create these stories and have that freedom, like I said, that like, it is very, very inspiring. So what are some of the books that you're reading right now? Just before I dive into books, I just wanted to say in one respect, I was actually very lucky in getting affiliated with Bill Campbell because, you know, outside of him, I had been publishing, I had been writing and drawing Malice and Otherland on my own. You know, I'm not sure if I would have actually received the, kind of the same degree of exposure and distribution, like, you know, without a lot of his hard work. He believed in the story and he gave me a lot of creative freedom you know, as a writer and an artist. So that helped a lot to kind of keep me going and to kind of galvanize me and, you know, make me feel like I didn't have to check myself. So that aside, <laughs> um, uh, right now, I just finished a really great book called This One Summer, and it was recommended to me by a good friend and illustrator, Sarah Woolley. Uh, it's by Mariko Tamaki, and it's very kind of slice of life. Uh, it's not as magical as some of the other stuff I've read, but it's a really perfect mixture of excellent writing and a uh, visual narrative that seamlessly molds with the writing and creates a high degree of relatability, if that's even a word. We'll make to, it a word. We'll make it a word. <laughs> to to uh, the main character and kind of what she's dealing with, which is like a situation where her parents are on vacation, there's a lot of unspoken uneasiness between them. They're kind of drifting apart and she, and she's kind of feeling that. So, you know, I related to that very well because there, you know, have been times where it, you know, I kind of experienced a similar thing and it's very difficult. I think as a young person kind of being in that situation because you feel very powerless. So, you know, for me, I, you know, it kind of made me draw more because I would it kind of turn in and in, into my imagination. So, that was a really great book. I recently also read another book of uh, a compilation of horror stories by Junji Ito. I tend to read a lot of horror stories as we get further and further over to Halloween. And I'm a big fan of her, uh, his. He's a very uh, disturbed and talented individual. 
I think we're meant to be friends because that's yeah. me. I like I, I have been scared. I, I do this every year before Halloween. And then by the time Halloween rolls around, I'm sleeping with every single light on and by November my light bill yeah. is like six hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Um, especially after doing so much kid friendly stuff. It's nice to kind of just veer off into something that's utterly disturbing and just gross. So um I was reading, I just finished that. I just started digging into Cook Korean by uh, Robin Ha. It's a comic cookbook. And I've recently been kind of developing a small love affair with Korean cuisine. And so it's just amazing because there's a gazillion recipes in it. And they're beautifully laid out in comic book form. And so it's very easy to, well, digest uh, as you're reading it. Uh, And you can learn a lot, too. So that's been that's been a really good purchase. And then next up in my queue is Aya Love in, in Yap City by Marguerite Aboué and uh, Clement Aubrey. I think I'm butchering his name, which takes place in Africa and on the Ivory Coast during the 70s. And I love it so much. I read one of the earlier books about her that kind of was just her but this is her with her friends and it's all about dating and it's all about family and shenanigans and it also has the culture and the dress and the you know ideals and relationships between men and women and it's it's wonderfully framed and beautifully illustrated it's a lot i need to i'm making a list right now i'm gonna put it all (laughs) on my goodreads <laughs> yeah, I it's really cool because uh, one of the things I love too is that they have a glossary in the back. So you have all the slang terms, the food, the dishes, just everything in there and it's so it's you really kind of plunge into that world. It's very very rich, you know. I love that. I love when books when authors are able to do that. They're like, "Okay, they might not understand, so we're going to throw all of this in the back." Yeah. And so you can be a part of the story because you might yeah. read it and you might feel a disconnect because you don't understand the slang. So that's, right. that's really cool. Yeah. And what I hope I can pull anything from you, nothing that's not too secret. What projects are you working on? <laughs> uh, right now I'm beginning to gestate the next set of stories for Malice and Ovenland volume two. I am both excited and a little bit scared because I do remember what working on the first series of books kind of took out of me. So it's getting ready to kind of deep dive back into that cycle of work where, you know, I'm waking up in the morning, drawing, writing, drawing, writing on the way to work, drawing, writing when I come home, you know, weekends and things like that. And hopefully it'll be a nasty winter, so it'll kind of facilitate that. (laughs) Uh, The other thing that I'm thinking about doing is I have a children's book that I did called The Island Cats of Congaree. And it's a rhyming uh, story poem. And I did the illustrations for that on my iPad and was able to uh, print it up through Lulu, which is an independent uh, press, you know, publishing platform. And I'd like to actually make that into a coloring book because it seems like coloring books are all the rage right now, and I think it would be perfect for kids. They can read, they can color. I would just love to see my own artwork in coloring book format. I think that would be really fun. So that's kind of what I have in front of me right now. That would be awesome, Like especially if you're able to do that for, for Malice. That would be... That would be great. I would have that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the cat, the cat coloring book, I think will be kind of a test to kind of see like what, you know, what I have to do. And then when I kind of have it straight, I think I would love to do a mouse and oven line coloring book. That would be the bomb. 
That would sell out so fast. Oh, I wow. hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to stop by the podcast and speak with me today. And you can tell everyone where they can find you on social media. I have a Facebook fan page from Alice in Ovenland. It's facebook.com backslash Ovenland. And my Twitter handle is at Ovenland. And those are the two things that I'm probably uh, pouring over the most during the day while no one's looking over my shoulder. So you can check uh, check me out there. Um, also, Malice in Ovenland is available for purchase on uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, as well as at Forbidden Planet, the physical store. I know there's one more. Peep Game Comics as well. P-E-E-P-G-A-M-E-C-O-M-I-X.com. That's great. Everybody, go check it out. Get Malice in Ovenland. If you have not yet, you need to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so very great. much. <laughs> you have a great night. You too. Good night. Our next segment features actors Alfre Woodard and Mahershala Ali over at San Diego Comic Con. This was a quick interview in the press line, so you hear a little bit of background noise. Uh, where I asked them questions about their characters, Mariah Dillard and Cornell Cottonmouth Stokes. You can currently catch Luke Cage on Netflix. All 13 episodes are available. And check out all of our recaps on blackgirlnerds.com, as well as our after show that you can find on our YouTube channel. You can just go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash BGN TV and pull it up from there. Hi, hi. This is Jamie from Black Girl Nerds. How are you doing? Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, definitely. So when you're investing in a character that is a villain or an anti-hero, um, do you look for redeeming qualities in order to invest yourself in the role? What, what's your process about? I don't think you have to look for redeeming characters. Every human being it has the ability to be redeemed. And every human being sets out to... Uh, to have a great day. Nobody wakes up and go like, you know, how am I going to be an asshole today? Everybody goes like, oh, you know what? I know how to fix that. I'm going right down there and tell those I'm going right down there. Everybody gets right down there together. Everybody's intention bumping into each other and then somebody gets called villainous. Uh, I, I want to dovetail off of what Alfred said in that I think we wake up cognizant of the problems that we need to try to solve. And Everyone doesn't go about trying to solve those problems the same way. But I think in the end, villains and heroes and all that, however they're categorized and codified, are people who just are looking for peace and fulfillment. And the way in which people tend to go about doing things, we as an audience might get to sit back and say, well, they're wrong for doing that. But coming from the inside and working out, we have to have a very intimate relationship with that character and understand where that person is coming from, and, and otherwise he's not going to he or she is not going to ring truthful, and uh, and just try to 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 continue on that quest of fulfilling that character's individual needs. And also, it's that, and and I am not villainous, by the way. I'm a New York City councilwoman, but is that when you when you approach it the way Mahershala does, and it makes it a human being. You should all, if the actor is doing his or her job, 
you should be identifying with the villain sometime and understanding where they're coming mm. from. So when they, if they make a bad step, that's when you're like, oh, damn. Mm. I, you can imagine yourself in that situation or you can say, okay, that's when we part ways. Yeah. But, yeah. This show is a pretty serious show, and I imagine when you're off camera, it gets a little bit funny on the set. Was there any jokesters or pranksters on the set? We had a good time. Yeah. I think, I think we had a great time. Yeah. Like we, I mean, there was, look, it, there's moments of, of violence, and there's, there's, uh, there's moments of levity, but in general, I think we, we kept, it, kept it light when, after they called cut. It was a party. Yeah. <laughs> party in Harlem. What's something that you think will surprise um, fans of the show? Uh, is there something that you think, without spoiling, of course, but something that will surprise viewers when they watch? I don't know. I don't know if I would think about to say surprise as much as everybody's going to want to come to our neighborhood. Everybody's want to going to you want to want to be there because there's music. Cornell has this hot club. We always loved when we were working in the club. There'd be 300 extras all dressed up, and there'd be music and, you know, bona fide stars. You want to be in Harlem because they're going over to the, what's the name, fish joint getting food. People up at Sylvia's, people who want to go. I think they'll be surprised that they're going to want to jump into that world. Not only the Marvel world, but the Harlem world. Our final segment is with Theo Rossi and Eric LeRae Harvey, who play Shades and Diamondback, also known as Willis Stryker. So in this interview, we start immediately off with Theo Rossi and he starts speaking. And just to give you some context, he's talking about what it would be like to play a superhero. And then I go in to question him about other things relating to his character. And then shortly after the Theo Rossi interview, we interview Eric LeRae Harvey. And he talks about his role as Willis Stryker. And also I ask him some questions about going off script. And did he do anything different from what was written on the page? This is my this is my family. This is my thing. You know, this is this is my world, you know. So yeah, I kinda wish there are times I wish like they would stay open an hour later or an hour earlier and I can come and just like but but I kinda want listen, I love I it, I it, the alternative is I would love to be doing that yeah. more than anything, especially with someone who reads comics every single night. But I don't know. I think I could still do it. I'll go out in like a Luke Cage hoodie and nobody will know. <laughs> just pull it all the way over and I'll be straight. There's a scene that a lot of fans are talking about, the scene with you and Mariah, yeah. where you have a kiss. I interpret it as not necessarily romantic, but like a binding contract of your loyalty to each other. Mm. How do you interpret that scene? Well, that scene is uh, pretty amazing because it has a lot of levels to it, okay, for a lot of reasons. One, I love that there's a hashtag Shady Mariah. I think that's the coolest <laughs> thing in the world. Uh, I, I love that there's already fan fiction written about it. Um, people have already started writing the stories. I think that that is, as a fan, one of the most interesting relationships because it's so devious in a way. Um, Shades is strictly about power. And he's playing the long game. It's a marathon to him. You know, this isn't a sprint. And he, from the second he came in, people had no idea what was going on. Why is he there? Is he 
who's he work for? Like, what is he with? Is Diamondback even real? Does he work for Cottonmouth? Wait, he doesn't work for Cottonmouth. He's known him a long time. And then you start to see everything changes, right? Mid-season. But he's always had the same power. He wants to be at the top. Mariah was the perfect vessel to get him there, in a way. And with her, with him finding her dark side, in a way, and pushing that out, you know, with the help of someone like Diamondback, who kind of was putting her in all these bad positions, which was only raising her anger, Shades was doing it in way more of a cerebral way, which I loved. So to me, that kiss at the end was two different things. I felt like, one, it was, I got her. And two, it was, this is going to be fun, what we can do together. And I think Shades is happy in a position of power, but nobody knowing it. That's why I've always loved that reference Cheo said about the little finger, like the little finger of Game of Thrones is the little finger of, of Harlem in a way, because he's kind of dictating the way things are going and nobody sees it. And the really astute fans and the smart fans are starting to see it. And I think that that kiss was one of those things where it was like, wow, something's going on here. And I just think it's so cool because they're two characters that at any moment they could just stab each other or they could, or they could rule the world. Or they could, you know, and I think that that's, to me, the villains that I've always looked up to. Reading comics, you know, drawing comics and watching cartoons and everything were the villains that it didn't matter who the hero was. They were just going for power. They didn't have a personal vendetta against somebody. They didn't have whatever. They're just going for this, and the hero's trying to stop them. It's like Wilson Fisk. Fisk is just going for power. He doesn't care who's trying to stop him. And that's what I love about these two characters. So... We'll see how that kiss goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really interesting watching him through the entire series where you're like in the back of your head thinking, if people just listen to Shades? <laughs> yeah, it'd be all right. Yeah, it would be all right. But how, how was that to play? Just having him like trying to be the voice of reason almost on the antagonist side. You had to have a lot of patience as an actor coming in in the beginning because he's very, for lack of a better word here, he's shady in the beginning. He says a few lines here and there. He's kind of making these statements that are into bigger issues, but nobody's really listening because there's all this other stuff going on and all this other noise. And then as you start getting more into this story or listening to this album, I call it like a 13-track album, as you're listening to every different song, you're going, wait a second. Look what he just said there. And wait a second. Look what he said there. And then when he comes in the club and he's telling him, what are you doing? This is completely, you. everything you're doing is wrong. And at the same time, there's part of me that thinks he was telling him, hoping that he would do all of that. So it took me as an actor as well and with a constant conversation with Cheo to also figure this guy out of what is his motives. How did he get to the top of Seagate? How did he become Rackman's, you know, Rackham's like right-hand man that he was had carte blanche in that prison? What did he do to get that? How does he somehow easily manipulate people all throughout and ultimately he winds up in the top? The greatest comment I heard so far was people are like, Luke's in jail and Shades and Mariah are in a club hanging out. That's not the way superhero shows are supposed to work. And that's what I love so much about it is Luke's on his way you know, has to clear his name and do all the stuff. He's going who knows where, you know, he, his, uh, his anger put him in a, in a really, you know, bad place. 
Quinnell's gone. And now you have, you know, these two people that ultimately one started as a politician and one was this shady guy who might be more villainous than any single person we saw the whole time. I love that. And, and for me, it took a lot of patience. And, and still now, I just finished the series myself. I'm still, like, processing it and have, like, all these different thoughts. Che and I have talked a hundred times since I've seen the show because I've been like, oh, my God, this and that and this and that. It just makes him... He's so interesting because there's so many ways it can go, you know? Shady Mariah. Shady I mean, Mariah. did you realize that that was going to become such a thing? No, so here's... The, the funny thing is, and I was just telling this story, is we, we do, we do you know, table reads throughout and, uh, you know, before every episode we read. And there was earlier, earlier, like a couple of episodes before, not too much earlier, but maybe like three or four episodes before, there was something where they were together. In like there was like a, you know a heavy kiss in the beginning and it was like maybe episode you know 10 or 9 I'm guessing here and I was like oh wow okay what I loved is that it got changed and moved and what it what it became was more of this if you notice when they start talking from the first time he comes to her house which is really funny because she really does need a security system on that house because people just keep showing up I love that line that Shade says <laughs> people just keep showing up through the back door. What I loved is that every time they started talking, they were getting closer and closer and closer. What I love so much is that that kiss didn't happen early, is that you started to see their relationship through not a lot of words, like just the way they were looking at each other. Someone wrote me on uh, Twitter or Instagram and said, I, I wish my husband looked at me the way Shades looks at Mariah. <laughs> Somebody took like the moment right after that and like turned it into a gift. Yeah, and that's the caption. And I and I think that that's so cool because it it's exactly what you know you know Alfred and I and all and and Cheo and them were trying to do was just watching these two with, while all this stuff was going on around with all these other villains, watching these two kind of come closer and closer and closer. And it's almost like you know at the end, what I think is so exciting is it's so villainous it's so kind of like what is happening do they trust each other do they not trust each other are they just going to link up and like kind of just be just such bad people or you know who knows does one make somebody better than the other you know shades i've always felt like there were moments where i saw with shades throughout and you know my only job as an actor is even if i play the worst characters is to make you feel something for them and it's funny because i have a lot of people that were like I want to hate him, but I like him. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that what we said before is he was the voice of reason on a lot of things. All these people were wiling out and going crazy. He was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I think that he always fancied himself smarter than everybody else. Do you have any similar qualities to Shades? What what aspects of Theo matches Shades? So sunglasses. I can't wear them ever again. <laughs> I, used to, I used to wear black Ray-Bans all the time. Uh, I have them in my bag. I haven't put them on since the show aired. I don't think I can anymore. <laughs> I think that's out. No, the only the only similar quality I have, I would say, to to Shades Alvarez, through Hernan, is that he's relentless. His his he's gonna get what he wants. He's relentless, and I'm 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 very much like that, you know. In a, you know, training for the New York City Marathon right now, and I'm like relentless in my training. Like I'm relentless in in a lot of things that you know I, in what I want to pursue and what I want. I think that that character is relentless in his seeking, in his quest for power. He's relentless. 
what I was curious about was the, the process of doing that, working with Cheo, especially when Marvel's famously so secretive about handing out scripts to you guys. Yeah. What was that process like, you know, getting into it and trying to crack who Shades was, but also seeing where he was going, not just at point A, but all the way to the very end? It's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a back and forth. You know, Cheo is the most collaborative person I've ever worked with, hands down, like by far. You know, um, I... I'll say this and I'll say it forever. I mean, also, you know, one of our other writers, executive producers, Charles Murray, was from Sons of Anarchy. You know what I'm saying? So we had a deep relationship. And he actually wrote uh, a few of the episodes, but wrote the Seagate episode, which gave a little more history on uh, Shades. So we got to talk a lot about that. I also knew the comic pretty well. And a lot of times in this world, it doesn't really help because these second and third tier characters are really built from just a few issues that they're in. And then they, you know, obviously from a 1972 uh, character to translate it to now, you have to kind of update it a little and change some things. There's that, but then also there is this learning process, which is the only weird thing is as an actor, is you go back after seeing certain things and go, oh, I would have played that so different in that episode if I knew that. So you got to trust in the words that you're saying in the moment, which really helps because you're living in the moment, not knowing what's happening. I had no idea what was coming. I just knew that there was a long game involved. I knew that there was way more to it. And that was frustrating in the beginning. When I first sat down at San Diego Comic-Con with people, you know, we were doing interviews, the critics had seen the first seven. There was nothing to talk about. This, this show is two separate shows. It's one to six and a half and six and a half and seven to 13. That's another show. So for me, they were like, oh, so you play like a thug on the show or something? Like, what do you do? You're like a bodyguard or something? I was like, yeah, you just got to watch the show. It was like, I, you know, and even, and even with Alfred, yeah, and even with Alfred, it was like, you know, they're like, so you're a politician. And they're like, you turned bad or something? And she was just like, yeah, just watch the show. You know, it's like you, it was so hard because it's so, and especially with the way the marketing was, you know, you built it up where the big bad is Cornell. Like, that's it, the big bad. And, and you're just like, Man, you just gotta watch it. You just gotta watch it. So this is, this now is really, uh, it's beautiful because it's like it's out there, and, uh, and and there's so much to break down and process, especially with that last montage of where all the characters end up. Going back to his actual shades, yeah. because you said that you couldn't yeah. wear them again. Yeah. What was it like trying to get across all the nuance of the character without having your eyes a lot of the time to to convey some of that? Especially in the character I played before this, you know, on, on, for a long time on a TV show, Sons of Anarchy, everything's in his eyes. You know, uh, when any character I try to play, everything's in your eyes. As a human being, everything's in your eyes. You can tell when people don't look at you in the eyes. You can tell when, you know, someone's upset. You can tell when someone's sick. You can tell when someone's whatever. So you don't have any of that. What, it, what we found ourselves doing, and I talked to Cheo about this, I was like, when he gets to those moments of convincing or getting his point across, it's going to look weird, but his glasses always kind of come off. And what's funny is a friend of mine who's like crazy comic book, you know, freak in every way more than I am. He's like, does Alvarez, like, does Shades have some kind of power that like he can get people to tell him the truth? And I was like, he's like, when he takes his sunglasses off and looks at them, I was like, no, that's really interesting. Because when he does take them off, it was like you kind of see something about him. So for me to play a character that was wearing them all the time, I thought it was really cool because here we are talking about how no one saw the long game coming, how nobody saw things happening. And I think a lot of that relies, you don't see his eyes. You don't see what's going on. 
maybe if he didn't have those on, he would have gave it away. Who knows? You know, I would have gave it away. I was just being a bad actor or something. Thank you. Thank you, guys. With Marvel, Netflix especially, they really try to make it, you know, very real and kind of gritty. And, yeah, there's the, there's allusions to, like, comic book costumes and stuff, but usually it's, like, real world. You actually get to wear, like, the diamond back, like, here I am, here's the vest, you can see the shirt and everything. Like, when when Teo showed you, like, hey, we're going to put you in this, like, what, what was sort of your thought process? Really? Like, amazing, you know? I was... I felt so honored, you know, uh, because they didn't put the, they didn't give the costume to the hero, you know, they gave it to the villain, you know, and I don't think like they do that too often, you know, and I think I would have been the first black villain with the costume, you know, so I was just like, wow, wow, you know, I, I hope to live up to, you know, to the worthiness, you know, just being honored with, with, with the costume. And uh, I don't care what it looked like, you know. <laughs> I was just like, it, I get a costume. I get a costume, you know. So um, I was really pleased to have it. It was a nod to the, you know, the character from the comic books with the yellow and the green. Um, but, you know, it's, it's got to withstand a punch from Luke Cage, you know. So I, so I need a helmet, <laughs> you know. The season really being split into two. There's mm-hmm. very much episodes one through seven and then eight through thirteen. Right. And your character dominates eight and thirteen. But how much do you know about the first half of the season? I mean, I'm a little sad that we never got to see Cottonmouth and Diamondback on screen together because right. Mahershala Ali was so captivating as so that character. Right. Are you a little bummed about that, or how much did you know going in about what was happening in one through seven? Yes. Well, I mean, of course, I you know I knew what was going on. Um, I read every script one through seven before. I, you know, I had to wait till they finished shooting one through seven before I got to show up on set. I think originally they had, um, they wanted Diamondback to kill Cottonmouth, you know. Um, but they thought it would be much more interesting to have his own cousin, his own blood, kill him. And I thought that that would be much more dynamic than, you know, me coming in and killing him. I mean, who wants to see, a, you know, a black man kill another black man again? You know what I mean? So, um... Definitely, Mariah should have, you know, she did. Yeah. So when I when I when I come on, it's not to avenge his death necessarily, but just to finish the job that I thought that he would have done had it not been for Mariah. So uh, I show up only because I have no option. You know, Cottonmouth's dead. Who's going to do it? He was my number one. You know, who's going to do it? It has to be me. So here I am. Research did you put into playing the role of Diamondback, and did you read any of the comic books? Uh, I did not read any of the comic books. I did not want to influence a 2016 updated version of, you know, a black man in America. So I stayed away from from uh, the comic books. We just took the core of their relationship, the fact that they were they were really close, and that they used to run the streets together. Um, we started with that, and um, and sort of invented Diamondback, uh, the 2016 version of them. And in that 2016 version, we realized that not only were they close, they were actually brothers, you know, and they used to run the streets because, you know, I had my own agenda way back then, you know. And uh, when he brought in the, the father, the same father aspect of it, I was like, just say no more, just say no more. Because, um, you know, that's something that's really important in the black community, you know, fathers and sons, you know. Black fathers either being there, and when they are there, what do they do? You know, um, 
and in this case, to be the firstborn son of a minister and have his minister do this to his own son was really powerful for me as an actor and emotionally. I mean, I have my own father, you know. I know what, you know, difficulties that, you know, that we've had. So I knew it was going to be a universal subject because not only does it touch upon, you know, the black community, but it's men in general have issues with their fathers, you know. And a lot of people say, oh, dad, you know, Diamond's back got daddy issues. Yeah, men do have daddy issues, you know. They say father and sons are the closest bonds, you know, and mother and daughters are the closest bonds. That same-sex, you know, relationship that's really, really important. And when one starts out as fucked up as it does, you know, um, for Diamondback, then, you know, you, you, how can you imagine you to come out to be anything else, you know? So, uh, that was the um, history, that was sort of the uh, character development that, that we went. And once you put like how screwed up his paternal you know father was and then you land him in jail and then he kills his first person in jail and then he comes out and he can't get a job and the only way he can is through gun running guns and then he gets to the top of that you know sort of empire and now he's meeting generals of war you know underground world selling guns i mean who's ever seen a character like that right i mean can you imagine a life like that and if you can what would it look like and I think it would look sort of similar to like Diamondback, you know, this sort of psychotic person that has to think this way in order to survive because that's the way he could get through life, you know. The end of the season, we obviously see him getting wheeled away. Right. <laughs> We've seen other characters getting wheeled away at the end, like Nuke or Simpson in Jessica Jones as well. Mm -hmm. Is there a chance he's going to come back with some kind of powers, do you think? Uh -huh. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. You know, I, I remember coming to set that day and uh, I saw the doctor. I was like, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I'm just so glad you're here because um, it just gives hope. You know, to Black Lives Matter. You know, he's still alive. He's not dead. You know, so it gives hope, and we have no idea where what's going to happen. Uh, we don't. I don't have any idea if the doctor's going to do anything, you know, that could be just a tease, you know what I mean? We don't know. Um, but whatever it is, I would like to see Diamondback come back. Um, I don't think he will come back in that suit anymore. I think the suit's done. I think Luke knocked the fuck out of that suit, you know? <laughs> so, the possibilities. That's always a fun thing to have. Hope and possibilities. Marvel TV shows especially are known for their fight sequences. Yes. The fight sequences in Luke Cage were really, they're interesting because it's like how do you basically go against someone who's indestructible, right? It's like Luke Cage didn't really have to fight because he could just stand there and defeat everybody. Exactly. And eventually your character comes up with his glove and he gets the ability to kind of do something similar. But I'm wondering for you, you spent a lot of time like flying through the air, yeah. right? Like when, especially that scene in the theater where it's like you and Mike and you're doing that uh, battle scene and you're just like flying <laughs> through mm -hmm. the air all the time. I wonder, what was it like filming those sequences? Uh, they were a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, personally, I'm a physical guy, so, you know, I, I love, you know, any sort of physicality. Yeah, you know, that was just, that was an interesting, like, you know, question throughout the whole show. Like, what can you do? You know, I think Mariah even says it. Like, do you drown him? Like, can you poison him? Like, what can we do, you know, to, to hurt this man? And um, thank God I have the resources, you know, that Willis has 
resources, even at that time, to have a bullet like that. Where does that come from? Like, who has a bullet like that? No one, you know? So it's, he's not from this place, you know? He's from this other... And then the resource to have a suit made like that. But the fight scenes were wonderful. I didn't get hurt, thank God. We kind of touched on this just now, and I we talked to Theo about it too, but um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the long game process of developing uh, Stryker and Diamondback working with Cheo, yeah. especially in your case since you knew what was going on in those first seven, but we, we knew of you watching it only because people talked about you. And then you come in like with a bang and then you're there, but I, I imagine you were, as you said, you were still a part of that process with Cheo, so I wondered if you could talk, kind of talk about that process fleshing out the character and like playing this long game with uh, Cheo. Well, um, you know, he's a busy man, first of all, you know. And I think um, once they told me that they wanted me to play Diamondback, they didn't have an idea of exactly what that story was going to be. They just knew they wanted me for the, they knew they wanted the character and they knew they wanted me to play the character. And I think, um, you know, somewhere after they started the process, maybe episode two, three, maybe, Che and I started talking, okay, well, you know, his appearance is about to come up, you know, who is this guy? How are we going to approach this guy? So, the wonderful thing about Che is that he's just so open, you know, and um, he doesn't, he didn't know exactly what he wanted specifically at the time, but he just, he knew he wanted something amazing, right? And uh, he was really open to a collaborative process, and, and you know, we discussed my, what can I bring to it, you know, what truth can I really bring to it um, as an actor? Um, what was his ideas as a writer, and then we just sort of like, you know, worked. Luckily, you know, and for me and for him, like my, my grandfather was a Baptist minister. I was raised in the Baptist church. Lots of cousins, aunts and uncles, you know, in the church. So the religion thing, you know, I totally understood. The hypocrisy in the religion thing, I totally understand. So there were just a lot of, I mean, he was a really hard character for me to play, personally. I don't want to go into my father's history, but, you know, just, I have, you know, I, I have a father, so, I, you know, it was just, it was a really deep thing um, for me to play, you know, uh, Diamondback, but I think it was really important, you know, that, that those issues get discussed and they get brought out. Your entrance is made even better, not by the, or not just by the fact that you, you've got Luke on the run, but that you come in quoting the Warriors, so I was curious, was yeah. that your idea or was that J.O.'s? Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the two kids watched that movie growing up, Carl and Willis. I mean, they went to the movie theaters and they saw that together a lot. So that was part of their history. It wasn't just random. There's a lot of that, like, thrown around, like, uh, when Shane says, what were you talking about, Willis? Yeah. And your character is just like, not now. Yeah, yeah, not now, dude. Not now, dude. Yeah, they, what's up with that guy, you know? I think I would like to see Diamondback come back and kill him. You know, <laughs> yeah, there we go. But no, we... You know, a lot of things are open, so we're just open to the possibility. There was a lot of smiling, I noticed, with your character. Was that intentional? Do you feel like when you're doing that, it's more menacing for the character, or does it have the opposite effect? Well, I, I think he, he used the smile as a mask. And in effect, saying nothing bothers you. Everything's always happy. Everything's always good, you know? Not meant to be menacing, I guess it's, it's meant to be protective. very heavy reliance on hammer tech all yes. through it and notoriously in the movies hammer tech is very 
unreliable. <laughs> and Justin Hammer himself. Like, is there a reason why you think Diamondback would have like used Hammer Tech specifically within the within the show with getting the guns and the weapons and the suit as well? Like, why would you rely on Justin yeah. Hammer for that? See, the great thing about comics and like you know just superhero stories in general is that. The villain is always flawed, you know? The villain has got to be, right? He cannot be the winner, you know? I mean, if he's the winner, then you have no, no hero, right? The hero dies, and that's the end of the story. So it's like, through, through his ego and pride and wonderfulness, and he, there's always something fucked up, you know, that he didn't think about, you know, that, you know, that allows the story to go on. And I think that's part of it. He's got this hammer tech, this faulty equipment, in a sense, a little bit. Um, it can be reliable, you know. Um, it's new equipment, so we don't really know if it's reliable or not. But then you got a villain that can't even shoot straight. No, I'm not joking. <laughs> I shoot him in the stomach. I shoot him in the chest. You know, I don't shoot him in the head or the heart, you know. So it's like, you know, I, you know sometimes like bullets doesn't know whether he wants them actually dead, you know, which is like familiar, which is, which is family. You know, you love them, but, you know, you hate them, but you can't, but you don't want them dead. You know what I mean? Sometimes you want them dead, you know? So it's just all part of, I think, the wonderfulness of, of comics in general. Like, no matter how great and wonderful the joke is, there's always something's going to fuck up that plan. You know? <laughs> and I think uh, this is Willis's, like, fuck up. It's actually kind of heartbreaking because they're in a similar situation, right? They were both written off by their father or this man. Yeah. And it's almost like you, you know, you know Diving back as a villain and he's done terrible things, but you almost want them to kind of come together and you get the feeling of maybe that's what Luke wants to. Right. But he just can't get through. Right. And like Diamondback doesn't know that until, you know, episode 13. And then Luke says, look, he never treated me well either. You know, and like, Diamondback never knew that, you know? Diamondback thought that he was always treated like, like he was, you know, whatever. Queen's knees or bees or whatever they call it. But, so I think if he'd known that information earlier, you know, things might have been different. Communication is key, isn't it? It's so key. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you do ultimately hope that like brothers can work things out, but we'll see. Can you be in the aspects of your character? <sighs> Improv, um, not off the bat, no. It was really all great writing, believe me. It was the writing. So we have Cheo to thank for Diet Obama. Oh, yes. <laughs> Diet Obama, and yes we can, and panties drop, and by Felicia, and all that stuff. Oh, by Felicia. Yeah, they're, they're very witty, those guys. Yeah, my pleasure, thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various segments on all podcast episodes are edited by M.R. Daniel and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our podcast is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals used throughout podcast episodes are created by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find our shows on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. That was a HeadGum Podcast.